into conversations with Q. I'm Lucia, Q's Marketing Director, and every week I have a chat with a marketer or entrepreneur from the tech space to get to the bottom of a bunch of things that are probably fascinating you, inspiring you, or downright puzzling you right now. Think how to make decisions about your career, what it actually takes to build a successful startup, marketing tactics you should and shouldn't bother with, the dark side of hustle culture, equality in the tech industry, and more. So we had a little mid-season break last week, but we're back with a fantastic guest in this week's episode. She's a hugely respected SaaS marketing and growth advisor who made a name for herself heading up marketing at Unbounce, where she helped grow revenue by 900% in her first three years. Since then, she's been working for herself as an advisor to tons of high-growth SaaS and e-commerce companies, as well as co-founding one of my absolute favourite learning resources, Forget the Funnel. It's the lovely Georgiana Laudy, who I honestly could have chatted to for hours. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. How Georgiana used Twitter to kickstart her career in tech, the realities of working at an early stage startup, hint, you'll definitely experience headless chicken mode, why so many founders get their marketing completely wrong, the state of diversity in tech, and so much more. Okay, so one question I really love to ask guests on this podcast at the beginning, because I always just find it really fascinating, is as a kid, what did you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> if you grow yeah. up. Um, it's funny. You know what? I wanted to be a photographer. Oh, okay. And, I, and then I realized I wasn't any good at it. <laughs> um, I Well, I mean, I was all right, but I didn't actually believe I was good at it to enough at it to make a career of it but I, I think I, I think it was photography mostly because my um, my father was an entrepreneur he had a business he still does it's been 40 okay. years and my mother was always sort of on the artist side scale of things she had like two fine arts degrees and um, she was a graphic artist and she was very artistic so I guess the I guess I thought photography was like the marriage of those two. I don't know. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I did notice that you studied creative arts at college. Um, so that kind of makes sense now. So you did sort of pursue it for a little bit. Yeah. Oh, I did lots of photography mm. uh, in the, in CJEP and, and in, uh, well, no, I, well, yeah, I did a little bit of it in university as well because of, I studied communication. So there was a lot of like, yeah. visual dynamics, uh, you know, aspects to, um, to that, obviously, to communications. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I tried to sort of keep it there. I didn't go the marketing route. I didn't want to study marketing. Nothing about the marketing um, department and curriculum really interested me. It was much more the um, like the, the the connotations associated or the meaning created through sort of uh, communications as opposed to sort of the business value of communications, which marketing was very focused on business mm. and the economics of it. And I just wasn't really, <laughs> I wasn't, that didn't draw me like at all. Sure. Well, I imagine actually photography and the visual side of things must be a really useful skill to have as a marketer. But so after you studied at university, um, I think your first job was head of marketing at a florist um, company. So how did yes. you go from not really being that interested in marketing to becoming a marketer? 
Uh, well, the florist actually is my father's business. Right. Um, okay. He's had that. He's been in the flower business for. He was in landscaping before that. Um, for, like I said, forty years, but more than that as a whole, if you include the landscaping business that preceded the, the flower business. Um, but that that was sort of out of uh, necessity, to be honest. It was like, I need to pay the bills. I think I was, um, what order did these things happen in? Wow, <laughs> it's like so long ago. I'm struggling to remember the order of events. But um, I uh, went, I worked for my father's business for about eight years and I managed the store. But as I was managing the store, it was at this very sort of pivotal time. And I decided, this was after university, um, I decided I was going to put everything to, to into work that I had learned and I was going to put this business online. And mm. at the time, and it may still be true, flowers were the fourth most purchased item online behind wow. porn, obviously, and <laughs> books. And I can't remember what the third one was, but then it was flowers. It's oh, okay. very, very competitive. Um, you know, I was competing against for my little local market against like the giants, like FTD and when it, when flowers and all these really, you know, I became very for the little guy and very, mm. uh, focused on, um, like geolocal and social media marketing for local small businesses. Um, and I just, it, it became this sort of, um, really sort of meaningful thing for me to sort of fight for the little guy and so I actually I did it for my father's business and I built multiple e-commerce websites so I got into the e-commerce side of things I got into CRO without really knowing that it was CRO mm -hmm. and I, I dove right into social media marketing because I I knew that we could leverage it as a differentiator in the local market against the giants so I really um pushed very hard for that and also organic SEO. I did a lot of that as well. So that's sort of where I learned all this online marketing stuff. And then eventually what happened was it worked and mm. other people started to notice. And so some of the industry magazines um, actually started reaching out to me and I started writing a column uh, for the local florists and local like flower business owners oh, okay. who know nothing about online marketing, obviously they're yeah. very, just, they're very creative souls, um, but they wanted to survive. And, um, so I started writing articles for sort of beginners and getting, uh, you know, a little bit more savvy on how to compete with the giants. And that sort of spawned this whole other career for me. Um, and it was right around that time that I discovered Twitter, which was the completely changed everything for me. Twitter was massively, massively influential in my career. Okay. Um, I was exposed to this whole tech community. I quit, <laughs> I quit my father's business. I left <laughs> and I started freelancing, um, because of that whole community that I became exposed to through Twitter and I started organizing local tech events and I got sort of very ingrained in the startup and tech community locally, um, which sort of kicked this whole thing off. But yeah, that's how it, that's how I went from university to, um, you know, maybe my, I guess my like second or third career. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's really interesting. And I, I was going to ask you how you made that transition over to the tech industry yeah. um I guess that kind of makes sense you know it is all about who you meet and maybe you'll just meet one or two really interesting people and then you're like oh 
it opens your eyes to a different possibility of your career Mm -hmm. um and also timing as well so important like most people I speak to on this podcast and I think this has in a sense happened in my own career it's just kind of like this social media thing was born right at the beginning of their career so they just sort of fell into it and often you're just the youngest person on a team so you're given social to do so <laughs> yeah yeah well it was funny because I, I while I was working at my father's business he's like a traditionalist right he's yeah a very typical sort of baby boomer and I was like no I'm telling you like we've got to get online I'm telling you we need to be number one I'm telling you I was like pleading with him you know to to sort of believe me and believe that this was going to be a thing this mm. the, the internet was not going anywhere and I was you know I felt like I was in a very typical, I guess, like parent-child sort of relationship and dynamic, you know, when you work with family, I'm sure it's very typical to end up in where I was. And I was trying to convince him that like, no, we need a better website. No, we've got to rank and no, we've got to be active on social media. And, you know, we can't skip this stuff. And let me tell you, I haven't worked at the, at his store in, Mm, 10 years more than 10 years now and they're still reaping the benefits of the stuff that I was doing yeah. in like the mid like early 2000s so between I worked there between 2002 and 2009 I think um and they're still reaping the benefits they've got you know I mean they're not doing social media anymore because they don't have anybody to prioritize to do that unfortunately but oh, okay. their website is a huge huge part of the success of the business the fact that they're you know, have so much domain authority because of all that work done in the early days. So yeah, it was they <laughs> thankfully I just like pushed through and I spent a lot of my time on that. I had a lot of mm. obviously flexibility to, to do that because um it was my father's business, so I could, but uh yeah, it was yeah. it it meant everything because I was able to sort of learn on the job. I didn't learn SEO or content marketing, or conversion rate optimization, or e-commerce, or any of that in university. I learned a lot of the theory around it, and I learned a lot of the, some of the some of the skills to sort of build sites and stuff like that. But I, all of that was learned on the job. That's you know. Yeah, um, it's so valuable. Yeah. At the time. Yeah, on, honestly, I think um, sometimes the best way to learn is just by doing and actually yeah. executing things. So your first kind of um, big job in tech was at Unbounce and you achieved some pretty amazing things during your time there, working your way up to VP of marketing and helping to increase the company's revenue by 900% in three years, as well as scaling the team from one to 35. So I'd love to hear what it was like to be an early employee at such a high growth startup like Unbounce and sort of what were the main challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? Oh, wow. (laughs) So, yeah, that was a, Unbounce was a, was huge, huge, huge for me. So I was freelancing at the time, um, like I mentioned, and I had sort of my my heart was sort of split. All my the companies that I work with become sort of these like you know children for me. I become so invested, <laughs> and so I was at the time I was working as a freelancer. I'd have four or five you know quote unquote children that I cared so deeply about at any given time that I was quickly burning out um, mm-hmm. because I was working all the time because I, I you know I just cared so 
so much, maybe arguably too much. So I, when I found Unbounce, I was so excited. Well, they actually found me, but I was so excited because of the, um, the momentum that was already sort of there, their customers were raving fanatics. So, so many, you know, amazing things. I was reading about them online. So I, and the team, you know, I went from, I went from being a freelancer. So being, you know, more or less the only person in the room who knew what they were talking about as far as, you know, digital marketing and online marketing Mm -hmm. to a team of absolutely brilliant humans and I call them humans because they were all so kind and generous and real and genuine um that knew so much more than me um so it was very intimidating but it was so exciting because I knew I was going to learn a ton um so the the team was um there was about there was 14 employees at the time um and I was like oh wow I'm late <laughs> it's yeah. funny I I was like, I wish I had heard about them, you know, a couple of years ago, because I felt like I had already sort of missed the big growth, which is, you know, just a testament to the fact that I knew nothing. Um, But I, I was like, I'm getting on this train late, but I'm getting on it anyway. And I worked remotely from um, across the country for the first two months, because I wasn't living in Vancouver at the time. And then I decided to relocate after a couple of months. I was like, no, this is it. Like I, I've got to, this is, this is the brand I was looking for to fall yeah. in love with the, the, the one child, right. Instead of splitting my heart in five. So I was like, no, I'm going to invest myself in this. And so I moved across the country and, um, yeah, it was, uh, mayhem. I mean, I don't really know how else to describe it. Other than <laughs> I used to say I was like a chicken with my head cut off. That was how it sort of operated day to day. Uh, I just threw myself into it and it was really needed at the time because, um, just like work-life balance was not really a thing. Um, mm. it was just sort of well understood that you just were going to do whatever it takes. Um, and at least it was well understood by, by me. I was, you know, I was fully willing to invest myself in that way. And I would work evenings and I worked weekends and, um, you know, late, a lot of late nights pre-launch, uh, it, we just sort of did what we had to do to get whatever it was we needed to out the door. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it was a lot of, I mean, I hate the word hustle, but it was just a lot of that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I joined at a director level cause again, the team was not that big. So I, I joined as the, I think it, I don't even remember what my title was when I started, but. Um, about nine months in, um, they were like, yeah, you should be running the whole marketing department. Because originally I had come in sort of under Ollie, uh, who was serving as like, I guess, sort of a CMO type role. So I then took over marketing, um, which was a whole odd dynamic, but mm. it was uh, amazing. It was exactly what I wanted. It was exactly what I needed at the time. I started building out a team, which was you know, totally new to me. Um, and also amazing because I got to hire people so much smarter than me. And, you know, I learned a ton from them and I, you know, I, I just sort of, (laughs) we just, you know, again, we worked as a small team and we just worked quickly and, uh, did as much as we could. We made a ton of mistakes, but we, we all really cared about the output Um, and so it made it just this amazing experience because we all cared so much about the success of the company. We're all very, very invested. I felt like I was 
sort of said this, uh, I always sort of felt like a founder there because we mm. were such a small team and, you know, I was just a one level below founder. So I felt as, as much responsibility for that company as I, as the, the founders did probably. Yeah. I think it's great if you get the opportunity to join a startup at that early stage you do, yeah, you feel like a founder and, you know, and usually the people you're working for will really value your opinion. So it's just, yeah. I always think if people can get into a company at that stage, they should definitely take that opportunity. Um, but you mentioned mm-hmm. um, just then when you joined Unbounce that they already had this community of like raving fans. And then yes. but also internally, um, there was that sense that people were kind of really in love with the brand so where do you think on both sides that comes from was it just the sort of people running the company and that sort of shining through i do i really think it was it, it is that uh, it still is that um it's it was there were six founders or there yeah it's six founders started the company which is a lot um and because of that i think they all were able to sort of carve out their role quite well and they all served a very important role um and so the the head of i'll i'll refer to well the, the ceo obviously incredible for many many reasons all ollie ollie gardner incredible for many many reasons um also the head of product carter gilchrist who um, one of the smartest people i've ever worked with and so likable like being responsible for a product is as many people know, very, very challenging mm. and very political. And Carter did it better than, you know, th- than anyone. He was amazing to work with. I learned a ton from him, but he, he as well, obviously also really invested himself and really cared. And he, um, he made sure that customers were informed part of the process taken care of. Um, and I think because of that, I think it, it came through. It, it shone through the the product itself that that customers were priority number one and very cared for and that the product team was very you know uh, heavily considered them in every single decision that they made. Um, so I think Carter was a big part of that, and I think that I mean I think I feel like it almost speaks for itself. So Ollie was obviously a big a huge part of that as well because he 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 sort of let everybody into his heart. Um, and so th- there was a lot of heart involved actually, yeah. uh, with Carter and with Ollie as well. And with Rick, the CEO, um, it just really shone through in everything that they did, that they really, really cared about what they were building. And I think it, it customers just sort of recognize that. And though the product may not have always been perfect and, you know, we made our mistakes. I think that, that because we had built that sort of affinity, our customers were very forgiving as well and, mm. and very, um, you know, willing to sort of uh, roll with the punches with us when when we were, you know, less than we should have been for them. Yeah, I've noticed that as well in my time at Q. It's quite nice when you have that dynamic with customers where they can see that you're working really hard to do mm-hmm. everything you can, but they're, you know, aware that you're a small team. Um, and I, yeah. I think that is the benefit of building a brand at a startup is that because you've got such a small team and limited resources and like you said everyone's kind of running around like a headless chicken and it's mayhem but you know that means that people get so much ownership over their areas of the business um so like Matt Q's co-founder often says 
he kind of wants employees to treat their little area like it's their own business within a business um so yeah that always really interests me um so I'm guessing like all of this um work you did first at your father's company and Unbounce really paved the way for the work you do now so you founded a company called a better cx which advises SaaS and e-commerce companies on how to achieve their business goals um and you've also co-founded forget the funnel with your co-founder Claire which is an online workshop series that offers training for early career SaaS marketers. So mm-hmm. I'd love to know two things, and I guess that your experiences in both your companies now will sort of feed into this. But if you could give one piece of advice, uh, of marketing advice to startup founders, what would it be? And then on the flip side, what advice would you give to a junior or mid-level marketer who's just joining an early stage tech startup? Only one. <laughs> If you had to pick um, one key piece of advice, like you just had five minutes with right. a startup founder and a marketer, what right. would you say to them? Um, well, it's tough to say. It's tough, tough to say what I would say to a founder without knowing what stage that founder was at um, with their company. Sure. Um, so let's I say mean, kind of very early stage and um, very early stage. Yeah, okay. and they're kind um, of not sure who they're going to hire for and what they should mm-hmm. be doing with their marketing. Mm-hmm. So one of the challenges that um, that became really, really obvious to me uh, when I left Unbounce. Here, here I'm gonna I'm gonna connect the two here. Okay. So when I when I when I left Unbounce, I didn't really know 100% what I was gonna do next. I had a feeling I'll probably go back to consulting or, or you know something of the sort. And I put a post up on my uh, personal Facebook. And I, you know, made the announcement that I was resigning and that I would keep everybody posted on what I was doing next. Mm-hmm. And within a couple of minutes, my inbox just blew up uh-huh. with um, founders and, um, you know, various uh, various companies looking to work with somebody who had a, a lot of experience in SaaS. And it quickly became obvious to me that senior marketing people in the SaaS space were, you know, few and far between. It's not that I didn't actually know that because even during my time at Unbounce, I would get, you know, I, I, I would get, you know, job offers from, it sounds ridiculous, but I would get job offers all the time from, you know, uh, other, from SaaS founders. Mm. And I realized quickly it was because there's not actually that many people who could say they've been in SaaS marketing for, you know, 10 or so years. Because yeah. it's a young industry, and I just happened to get in quite young, so you know, or early days, I should say. Um, and so, what I realized was there was a sort of lack of senior sort of talent there, and there was, and of those senior people, because they were so scarce, the price tag for them is just quite high, right? And so yeah. my um, my salary expectations, let's say, and I I wasn't entertaining in house roles but their expectation for what you know they could pay or what they should pay for somebody very senior was actually out of sync with the market and so they would quickly these founders who were looking for cmos or vp level people with like you know eight to ten years experience they quickly realized well we can't afford somebody with 10 years experience so let's go with somebody who's got you know, three to five years experience. So Mm. they come back to like, you know, mid-career 
um, marketers um, who were less expensive, but also um, less experienced, obviously. And then there'd be this struggle. And so they'd hire these early or mid-level marketers who would then struggle to sort of advocate for marketing internally, really own the role of marketing, um, think in a strategic way that aligns with business goals and do this sort of senior level sort of strategic thinking that the founders were sort of expecting and they weren't really given the freedom to do it or to they weren't getting, given the support to, um, to do it either or to learn the ropes. And so my answer would be, if you're going to hire somebody to founders, if you're going to hire somebody mid-level for a role like a head of marketing, and of course this is true of other departments as well, but I'm just gonna obviously focus on marketing here. Mm-hmm. But if you're gonna hire somebody mid-level, please support them. Please give them the sort of uh, leverage and ownership that they need over um, their department and try to trust them. And if they don't have the level of experience that you think that they need, well, get them it. Get some yeah. professional development. Hire them a mentor. Get them some training. Get them some coaching to support them in the ways that you cannot. Because most founders don't have a marketing background and they are not equipped from a skill set standpoint, but they're also not well equipped from a bandwidth standpoint to support a mid level marketer in the way that they need to be supported. So you need to, um, you know, provide a layer of support that you cannot, it's on you to make up for that. And so I would say hire somebody for marketing probably, you know, sooner than you think you should, and then make sure that you're supporting that marketer to really own the role of marketing and own the, the strategy. Don't just um, dictate what the marketing strategy should be. Don't hire somebody to execute on your strategy. You really do need somebody to own it and, and sort of run with it. And, and like you were just saying, feel like it's their business yeah. um, and, and really feel responsibility and accountability and ownership for the role of marketing at the company. And if you're, you know, if you're working for somebody, if you have a founder who doesn't trust you or doesn't feel like you've got that, that, um, strategic vision or, or ability, it can be complete, it can be totally stifling mm-hmm. and you'll burn out, you'll feel inadequate, you'll suffer from, you know, imposter syndrome. There's this whole, um, added challenge that marketers have at tech companies, which is that they are typically one of the only non-technical people at a tech company. Mm-hmm. And so they've got that whole other power dynamic to deal with as well. And so there's that, there's extra support needed there and there's extra, um, There, but there's a little bit of a there's some campaigning you need to do on behalf of marketing with developers and engineers sometimes that somebody with less experience may be like I am not you know I didn't sign up for this or yeah. you know they didn't expect they'd have to fight so hard to have marketing be taken seriously or have a and I quote you know seat at the table mm. uh, which I obviously wholeheartedly believe <laughs> there needs to be uh, considering that marketing is such a huge driver of revenue. Um, so that was a really long-winded uh, answer, but hopefully that made some semblance of sense. No, it definitely uh, did. I'm sure so many people relate to that. I mean, yeah, everything you've said is completely true. And I love what you said about trust as well. I think that's so key. Yeah, well, I mean, that was why we started Forget the Funnel, right? So yeah. Claire and I started, we we had a couple of uh, you know Zoom calls 
and we, we were both doing client work. We both left our in-house roles at around a similar time, and we started chatting about this phenomenon that is just, you know, almost all of our clients who came to us had the same problem, mm. where they'd come to us for a marketing strategy, or to talk about marketing strategy, or they, that they needed one, and then, you know, we'd say totally separately, you know, well, who's doing your marketing? Who's responsible for your marketing? Oh, well, I've got a marketing girl, or I've got a, mm. I've got a marketing coordinator, but like, no, that's, they're not it, mm. right? Like we need more. And, and it, and it was just over, incessant over and over again. And I would say, you're not hiring me to build your marketing strategy. We can talk marketing strategy and I can give you high level, you know, what I think would work well for you as a business, but far and away, the thing that I was saying over and over again was let's hire you a marketer. Yeah. Let's get somebody in here to take care of this and take responsibility for this. Cause no matter what I tell you, I think that you should do for your business. There's no way you can execute on this on your own and you cannot just, you know, um, hire a short order cook to, to execute on your, uh, on your ideas. That's not the way this, you know, that's not the way this works. And that's you're you're fast tracking yourself to not only the marketer burning out, but also not getting the results that you want. So yeah. this is why we started forget the funnel was it was exactly to address that these earlier mid career sort of marketers at these tech companies who were not being supported by their uh, their founders sort of feeling like they don't know what they don't know um, and uh, you know wanting to wanting some sort of um, reassurance that they were on the right track and that they weren't alone and. You know, we we ask still to this day. We ask anytime anybody signs up for Forget the Funnel, we ask them, you know, what what led you to sign up for Forget the Funnel today? That typical question, and we always mm-hmm. get answers. The top three answers were far and away: lack of trust with the C-suite or lack mm-hmm. of founder trust, um, lack of strategic sort of um, ability or what that even means, and also the third one: um, lack of mentorship and support. Uh, overall and and so those three things are sort of our guiding light for forget the funnel is is addressing those things we don't talk that much about I mean we talk about some tactics and marketing tactics but far and away what we try to focus on is helping that solo marketer or that marketer of a small uh, the head of a a small team um, to sort of get those three things yeah I think they're great things yeah so they're really I love the concept of forget the funnel because there's a massive gap um in the market for that kind of resource but I'd I'd love to just kind of specifically hone in on what you're addressing with giving marketers um the power and the knowledge to think strategically so can you kind of Mm -hmm. explain what exactly that looks like and how do you gain that knowledge as a marketer so I mean it's this it's always so gray and fuzzy right this concept of strategic thinking um and we we try as much as we can to make it as concrete as possible and and in concrete as as in as as it relates to marketing and sort of those foundational pieces that need to be in place so that you can build a strategy to support um, to support your customers and to support you know the role of marketing and uh, to support your marketing experiments and the things that you want to try and, and marketing as a whole. And so those strategic pieces are obviously largely tied to 
getting to know your customers and customer mm. research and, and customer insights. Um, the frameworks that you need to uh, sort of operationalize those insights and um, the tools that you use to sort of run experiments to um, and also can lean on uh, when you start to hire a team to support what works. And so we, you know, we, we ran this, um, we sort of quietly rolled out this uh, demystifying strategic thinking e-course. And it's this like five part e-course that really you of what your marketing strategy should look like, mm -hmm. um, or rather the pieces you need in place in order to build your marketing strategy. And we're just trying to, as much as possible, obviously we cannot say what, what your marketing strategy should be because yeah. we don't know your customers. We don't know your business goals. We don't know your product. We don't know your team. You know, we don't know any of that stuff, but as a marketer, there are a few key things that you can put in place in order to figure that out yourself. And so that's what we try to do as much as possible is, is sort of give people the tools to build their own strategies. Yeah, and I think that's really great because it is actually that foundational stuff, isn't it? Which I think is very easy to overlook, like things like customer research. You know, it's, it's actually simple yeah. just talking to your customers, but it's so crucial because but I think people get kind of distracted by, I don't know, the latest Instagram marketing hack or something like that. Well, I think they get distracted by needing the pressure to deliver on results immediately yes. yesterday. Yeah. Right. The startups are so high pressure and, and so fast moving that you're, it's very common to, you know, like just put out blog posts. We saw this result last time, you know, you know, mm. let's just keep doing that or whatever. And it's, it, the, the focus becomes on, uh, becomes focused on delivering results yesterday, as opposed to building sort of those foundational blocks to, um, make intelligent decisions and make intelligent hypotheses about what will work and then experiment with them. Uh, because yeah, it's just so quick, quick moving and, and it, yeah. the pressure is just so high to show results immediately, especially for marketers and tech companies, because, um, it's not engineering, it's not product development. And so in order to sort of prove your worth, you want to show results as quickly as possible. And that means a lot of shortcuts. And unfortunately, the shortcuts are detrimental. Mm. Um, so customer insights, just to sort of like come back to what you mentioned, yes, customer insights for sure, and speaking to your customers, but also operationalizing that and making it um, useful to the rest of the company and making it useful to your future team members of your marketing team and sort of leveraging that insight moving forward and, and building upon it and, you know, putting those pieces in place. That's all very high level thinking that when you're in chicken with your head cut off mode hmm. and just need to, you know, sort of deliver, it's very, very hard to make time for that. One of the first things that we tell marketers in our, in our 12 week training is, I mean, it, it's like within week one is, you must carve out strategic thinking time in your calendar every single week you have you need dedicated headspace 
to getting out of the weeds and looking at the big picture and making sure that you are constantly, as much as you are executing, also putting together those foundational pieces um, in order to leverage them when you're executing. So there, there has to be a balance of both. Call it 80-20, call it 90-10, call it 50-50. Um, you know, I guess that would depend on your, the culture of the company, but um, you have to make time for that stuff. And without the headspace, it's just you're just going to keep on the rat race and on the hamster mm. wheel of executing maybe you know totally ineffective marketing mm, i think that's such but good maybe advice this, maybe mm. it's dangerous <laughs> no that i think that's great advice actually just carving out the time in your calendar um so speaking of startup environments being kind of highly pressurized and earlier on you mentioned that you hate the word hustle i'd kind of love to get your take on this whole culture at the moment um of this like lifestyle promoted by instagram entrepreneurs um, and I'd really like to know kind of what success means to you and like your approach to work-life balance, especially, as you said, having worked in startups where it is mayhem and you're working loads. Have you sort of slowed down a bit more in your approach to work now? <laughs> I wish I wish I could <laughs> say yes, but I will say that it is a daily battle for me. Um, I am I'm getting better, <laughs> but... <laughs> I love working. Um, I'm I'm one of those people, and I'm realizing that I'm not that rare. <laughs> that there are a lot of people who love what they do, and they um, they become um, you know sort of uh, not obsessed, but uh, wanting to sort of you know perfect their craft and and learn and continue evolving. And I'm I just I. I can't give that up. I love it. And I have two yeah. small children. Uh, I have a two-year-old mm-hmm. and a four-year-old and I run, currently I'm running two businesses. So I wish I could say that I've slowed down. Um, I will say I'm a lot more efficient with the time that I do spend on work um, mm-hmm. because I cannot work 80-hour weeks anymore. I don't want to work 80-hour weeks anymore. Um, once upon a time, once upon a time, you know, when when I when it was early days of, of you know, startup life for me, I was more than happy to do that. Um, it wasn't healthy, but I was happy to do it because I cared that much. But I, and it's not to say that I care less now. Obviously, I don't because especially they're, they're my businesses now. So arguably, I care more. But um, I'm much more um, disciplined about the time that I do spend on work. And I'm much more deliberate about it because I know that if I'm, you know, if I'm working late at night, then it better be, it better be high value time if I'm not going to be spending it with, you know, my husband or my, you know, my kids or whatever. Mm. Uh, So it's a struggle. Um, Not, I won't lie, but I have gotten a lot better at it as of late. Um, Claire Salentrop, my co-founder, I forget the funnel, uh, her and I work together a ton and she's much more disciplined about it than me, ironically, and I'm one of children. Uh, And so I've learned, uh, I've learned to, um, I don't want to say limit my, limit my time spent, but I I just learned that I don't want a life where working, where I need to sort of work more in order to uh, be more successful or make mm. more money or you know, whatever your definition of it is. I promise this will be a brief interruption so you can get back to listening to Georgiana's wisdom. But if you like this podcast, I think you'll also enjoy the content over on our blog. Last week, 
I published a post on marketing partnerships just in time for Valentine's Day. I'd realised that despite co-marketing being widely used by some of the biggest brands in the world, there aren't many up-to-date resources to walk you through it. So I created one based on my experiences running co-marketing campaigns at Q and taking a look at partnerships between Uber and Galboss, Bumble and HBO and Buffer and the social chain as inspiration. We've also published a guest post this week by Nicole Elizabeth DeMere, a previous guest on this podcast and one of the most well-connected people in SAS. Nicole has created a superb expert roundup that's packed with strategies, tips and templates from six experts on how to craft the perfect email sequence for a launch. Go check out both posts at blog.q.co. Back to the podcast. Um, I've had a lot of mothers say that they're more efficient with their time. Um, and I know that both yourself and Claire, uh, in what you do at Forget the Funnel, are real advocates of women and diversity in tech and kind of making sure that what you're doing provides a platform for underrepresented or marginalised voices. So what's mm-hmm. your take on the current state of the tech industry in terms of diversity and inclusion. Um, I'm just sort of asking our podcast guests like what they think we all need to be doing to make it a better place. Oh, wow. It's a big question. (laughs) Um, This is a topic that um, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time in and around this topic for a long, long time. So I, the, the tech events that I was running early days, um, you know, back in 2008, 2009, 2010, those were focused on, um, they focused on sort of being a bridge for women looking to get into tech. And so they were, they were Mm. free events and they were speaker events and we have women from the tech industry, all, all corners of it um sort of uh you know speak to uh their career path and how they they you know um reached their their uh where they were in their careers and what they do and sort of those events were a little bit less and i I see this still still happening but what they were is they served as a bit of a bridge so rather than um, you know, sitting in on on a more technical event or an event where you might not feel as welcomed, these sort of served as that as that bridge for women looking to enter the, the startup and tech space. Mm. And they were uh, we were they were month over month events, and they were standing room only. You know, most of the time, most of our events were standing room only. Mm. It was really crazy the demand. And the the pace at which that community grew, and this was a long time ago. This is ten years ago now, and I think it's gotten a lot better. Yeah. Then, and uh, I am so excited by the strides being being made now, and the fact that it's not only women talking about it anymore, and it's not only you know the marginalized or people of color that are actually you know talking about it in their own little corners, it's become part of the, the sort of, you know, the larger conversation among everybody in the industry. And I think that is so amazing and so exciting because even just five years ago, um, it wasn't really a topic. It wasn't really a priority for, you know, the, the white guys that were starting startups 
-hmm. it wasn't a priority for them. It was all about results and what they're, you know, getting investment and what their investors wanted and, and, you know, BC life. And it's not that it's not still about that largely, but, um, it's just come so far, even in just the past few years. And it's amazing. And, you know, there's, there's people like Arlen Hamilton in the world and like just her existence excites me so much. And, uh, you know, and, and there's lots of examples like her as well coming up that are, is just amazing. And I, I'm really, really excited to see even the, um, you know, white cis men uh, in startup world and those founders really taking this seriously mm-hmm. and making it a priority and uh, to sort of learn about what it takes to build more diverse companies, not only because it matters to their, because it benefits their bottom line, but because it is important. Mm. Sure. It's really great to hear that from someone who's been in the tech industry for a few years and you've actually kind of seen the progress that's being made because I definitely get that sense that like you can't just ignore this stuff anymore like all of these found tech startup founders are realizing that yeah and, and it's a demand right and it, it's yeah. I mean look I I'm on an I'm on an advisory board for uh, advancing women in stem it's a, a, a local thing it's funded by the Canadian government and it is basically what we're doing is we're building programs for companies, uh, tech companies, to sort of help accelerate the, or help support the advancement of women in science, technology, engineering, and math. And so uh, what we're, what we largely focus on, unfortunately, is like, so how do we communicate the ROI of this? And, you know, how do, how do we, you know, communicate to business leaders that it is in their business's best interest to prioritize this. And there's lots of ways to do that. And there's lots of studies, there's lots of, um, you know, there's lots of proof out there that having a more diverse um, workforce is better for the world. Uh, You know, we build better products, um, you know, you can attract uh, talent and, you know, there's lots of things that you can sort of benefit from from business perspective. And it always always makes me kind of sad that like, does this have to come down to, you know, revenue benefit but at the end of the day I mean it is it is business and I guess that's sort of the best thing one of the best things to sort of rely on when you're talking about VC backed you know startups Um, but I think it's more than that for founders now thankfully especially Mm -hmm. in the tech and and SaaS space Uh, I think it's more than that it's more than just the business value of it I think for them and that's that's probably the part of it that makes me the most excited is that it doesn't necessarily need to be an economics conversation all the time it can be like this is actually better for you know the world and making people happier um at your company and and outside of it yeah just thinking about things on a more human level I guess um, well, Gia, I would love to talk to you for so much longer. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface of all the things I could ask you, but I'm not going to keep you anymore because I'm sure you've got lots of things to do with your day. Um, but <laughs> finally, um, where can our listeners follow you on social media or any projects you're working on right now? Yeah, um, so I'm always findable on Twitter. I am active there uh pretty well daily my twitter handle is ggiiaa poor decision on my part <laughs> i could have had my first name and i didn't take it <laughs> ridiculous uh, so yeah you can find me on twitter 
Um, you can also find me, uh, the Forget the Funnel workshops are available at forgetthefunnel.com and my own website, abettercx.com, I am findable there as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations with Q. We'll be back next week with another very special guest. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback. So please do rate, review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Thank you.